Well, hey, this morning, if you have your Bible or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, I really encourage you to go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Uh, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking all through Luke chapter 16. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for about a year at this point. We started Christmas last year. And I was just, uh, preparing for uh, this Sunday. I was going to do a specifically Christmas message from back in uh, maybe Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1. As I was praying about it, I just felt with the Lord saying, no, let's continue on here. Let's pick it up where we left it off after Luke 16. So turn to Luke chapter 17. Just as a quick reminder, we believe God's Word is perfect and authoritative over our lives. And so what it says goes. And so let's read it together today. Luke chapter 17. We're going to read the first 10 verses or so. This is what it says. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he uh, repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you and seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of a mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him whom has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he... Thank the servant because he did what was commanded. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We're going to talk about um, what these different things mean. I know sometimes when we read this through, it can kind of almost seem random. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're going to do the best we can with it. But if you would just pray with me, let's ask for God's help before we do that. Father, thank you so much for your word that we can rely on it. And uh, Father, I pray that as we talk about this, would you help us to really apply it to our lives? Would you help us not to just hear these things and go, oh, that's, that's really nice, and just go back to living the same way we always have. But God, would you transform us to look less like us and more like you? Mold us, Father, to be the people whom you created us to be. Jesus, we pray this all in your precious, life-changing name. Amen. Well, uh, my wife and I uh, moved into a house about five and a half years ago, and it happened this fall. For the first time, I found mouse droppings. For the first time, I know many of you probably have lived in a house and have seen a mouse, but the first time when my wife and I were uh, watching TV after the kids had gone to bed, and I looked over at the, the peripheral of my, my vision here, and I see a little mouse scurrying through my dining room. Let me tell you, it was not fun, all right? I grabbed the broom, and Tammy makes fun of me all the time, and I grabbed the broom, and I thought I could surely catch him. No, there's no way. There was no way I was catching this thing. So I looked it up, and I looked at the traps that I could buy, and I'm like, okay, how do I deal with this? Obviously, this is not clean. We cannot have a mouse in our house. I found all the traps at Menards, and I was like, yes, I'm going to set this all up. So I set up dozens of traps all around the house, and I wake up, nothing. So I look it up again. What can I do? I try some different things, and eventually, finally, 
I caught the mouse. I thought it was the mouse. It's never the mouse, right? People with have caught mouse in their house, right? It's never just one. It's more. So I caught one. I thought, man, this is awesome. We got rid of it. This is great. We're no more mice. The problem solved, and that's that's just great. And then we were sitting watching TV after the kids go to bed. And out of my peripheral vision, I see another one. Again, I'm like, oh, okay, come on. So I set up the traps, and I set it up just how I caught the last one. And I thought, okay, certainly the little sticky trap in between the dining room chair and the dining room table leg, this is going to work. This is what I, how I caught it before. This, it's, 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 I mean, this is just going to work, right? It's just, that's how it happened last time. It's going to work. We're going to catch him. No mouse. I could not catch this thing. And so I was like, all right, well, I looked up some different trap ideas, and we looked it up and different bait ideas, and we caught one, but it was totally different from the first time that we caught one. And then it happened a third round, and again and again and again, right? And eventually, luckily, I can say today we have no more mouse droppies, and I think we are mouse-free, hopefully. But it's interesting because we had to catch each mouse in a different way. It's almost like the mice were communicating with each other, and it was saying, hey, hey, don't, don't go in there. You know what happened to Speckles, right? I mean, you do not want to go in there, right? Don't don't forget Fluffy. Remember what happened to him? You don't want to go in there, right? It's almost like the mice catch on and they learn. And sometimes I feel like sometimes there's different traps that we can also fall into in our faith. I feel like kind of what's happening in this passage here, as Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's teaching them, he's saying, hey, there's different traps that you can fall into into your faith. I think he brings up four different traps that we are liable to falling into our faith. And what happens is if we fall into one of these traps. It can ruin our relationship with Christ. It can be detrimental to our relationship with the Lord. So take a look here with me. The first two verses, this is the first trap I think we can fall into. It says that Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says, temptations to sin are sure to come. We know that that is going to happen, right? We know temptations to sin are going to happen. Even Jesus was tempted to sin. But look at what he says here. He says, but woe to the one through whom they come. What Jesus is doing here is he's expelling this mindset that says, well, as long as I don't sin, I'm fine, right? Like, I don't sin. It doesn't matter how I act. I have freedom in Christ. I could do, you know, my Christian liberties here, and it's totally fine. And he says, no, 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 no. We also have to be on our guard against causing other people to fall into temptation as well. Look at verse 2. This is pretty serious. It says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone is literally what an animal would pull around. It's extremely heavy and it's grinding up the grain. And so what Jesus is saying here, it's almost like a little bit like mafia, right? Don't uh, disrespect the family. You'd be swimming with the fishes, right? I, I can't do that accent. But you know what I'm saying? Jesus is like, hey, listen, it would be literally better for you to have this giant stone around your neck and you hop into the ocean here. This is serious. He's expelling this mindset to say, hey, listen, what you do matters. Even if it's not a sin for you, it could still cause someone else to fall into temptation. And so here's the first trap that I think that we need to avoid, and that's putting others into temptation. Paul writes about this pretty extensively to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 14. And I want to read for you 10 or so verses from that. I know this is going to be a little bit more uh, lengthy, but I think this is just so good. It's such a good example 
what Paul gives us when he writes to the church in Rome. He says this in Romans 14, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Literally something that could stop someone from loving Christ, someone that could, or something that could ruin someone's relationship with Christ. He's going to give this example here. When Jesus came, he said all foods were clean. In the Old Testament, though, we know that God had put certain rules on the Israelites that they could not eat certain foods, that certain foods were considered unclean, certain foods were considered clean. When Jesus comes, he fulfills the law. He says all of these things are clean. You're now allowed to eat them. But undoubtedly, there were some people who struggled with that. If you grew up your whole life thinking that you could not eat lobster, and when you turn 40, this guy named Jesus comes around, you come into faith, you accept him as your Lord and Savior, and suddenly now you can eat lobster, that's always going to have a weird connotation to you, right? You're always going to be like, I, I don't know, that's just kind of funky. And so Paul brings up this example in verse 14. He says, I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. That's what Jesus himself taught that nothing is unclean in and itself. But look at this. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Essentially what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, listen, this food, if you think that it's unclean, if it causes you to stumble, if you feel funky eating this, then don't. It's unclean for you. Paul goes on, he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we had that mindset, how it would change us. You know, I think so many times as Christians, we get into these uh, really, really vain arguments, right? I mean, we start talking about things that we value and we think are really important, but actually distract people from Christ. Oftentimes that can be things like politics. It could even be something like COVID and vaccine and masks. So many times we can get into these vain arguments instead of looking what Jesus says here. Look at, I mean, take a look at this, the, the, um, the matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in Romans. I want to just read for you three more verses. It says, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I wonder if we really and truly did that, how it would change us, how it would change the kingdom of God. Verse 20, it says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul summarizes it like this when he talks to the church in Corinth about the same idea. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble stumble. 
we have got to have this attitude as Christians to say, hey, I don't want to fall in the trap of causing others to fall into temptation. Because if I do, that means that they are straying away from Christ. If I'm pushing people away from Christ, then that is the opposite of what God has called me to do. And ultimately, too, it's going to hurt my relationship with Jesus. So we have to be on our guard, as Jesus teaches here, not to lead others into temptation. Let's move on. Long time on that one. But let's move on to the next trap that Jesus teaches his disciples to avoid. Take a look here in verse 3. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Back then, the Israelites had a difficult time forgiving people over and over and over again. And what Jesus is teaching here is if someone comes to you and even if they sin against you over and over and over and over again, if they come to you and say, I'm sorry, and I don't want to do that again, they repent to you, Jesus is saying, you have to forgive them. So take a look here. The second trap I think that we have to avoid is to hold on to this grunge, right? Or I'm sorry, a grudge that we have to hold on, or that we sometimes hold on to. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have ever held on to a grudge before, it will tear you apart. And it is much more difficult on the person holding on to the grudge than on that other person. The Bible talks about this a lot, and it actually equates the forgiveness that we offer others with the forgiveness that God offers to us. Take a look at Ephesians. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. So as Christ forgave you, you are to forgive others. I don't know about you, but I have received truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of forgiveness from God. And I'm not sure that it's even possible for me to offer as much forgiveness to others as God has offered to me, which means this, that if someone has sinned against me and they repent, that I need to forgive them. Jesus equates this with him forgiving us. Take a look at Mark eleven twenty five. It says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 takes it, I think, one step further. He says, for if you forgive others your trespasses, uh, I'm sorry, uh, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will for also forgive you. But, look at this, this is really interesting in verse 15, but... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So literally what Jesus is saying is he's saying if you're holding on to that grudge, if you cannot forgive that person, whether it be your spouse or a family member or a friend or a coworker, or whatever, if you're just holding on to this grudge and it just tears you apart inside and you're just, oh, you're waking up angry. Oh, I can't believe that person. They did that. It's just constantly in your head. What Jesus is saying is if you cannot forgive them, it's going to be difficult for you to receive the forgiveness that he offers to you. So avoid that trap. If you hold on to that grudge, it will hurt your relationship with Christ because it will stop you from accepting the forgiveness that he offers freely to each and every one of us. Let's move on to the next trap here in verses 5 and 6. The apostles respond to what Jesus is saying, and uh, they are like, whoa, this is crazy. Increase our faith. So they have heard, hey, forgive someone seven times in a day. And they're like, whoa, 
that sounds difficult. I need some help with that, right? Like, God, would you just increase my faith? And Jesus responds by saying, listen, if you had faith, the grain of a mustard seed, again, this very small seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now you might say, okay, what's going on with this mulberry tree? What even is a mulberry tree? Well, not only do they have mulberry trees in Israel where Jesus was, they also have mulberry trees here. I don't know if you noticed, when you pulled into the parking lot for the past few weeks, we have had a tree that has been uprooted. There's a storm that came through, a tree fell over, and it's taken up a few parking spaces in the back of our parking lot. That happens to be a mulberry tree. I think that it happened in advance for this passage so that we could understand it a little bit further. I went outside and I took a picture of the roots. Now, it's difficult to see and it was really cold, so I didn't get a great picture. But here's what I wanted to point out to you. If you can notice here as I follow along with my laser pointer, there's a huge gap right here underneath the tree. That gap is pretty deep. And you could see some of the roots that come down here and they go pretty far. I mean, they're going feet. And if you look down, there are more roots. Now, this is an old tree. It had problems. It, the soil there is not the greatest. And so it was uprooted. But I did some research specifically about mulberry trees. And this is what it says. If you have it planted next to your house, there's a very high chance that you are going to have foundation problems because the roots are so strong. They are um, so invasive, they will just go into anything and they can bust up concrete. I mean, it is just horrible what these roots can do. So it's very interesting that Jesus here in verse six here, he says, uh, if you had faith, the grain of a mustard seed, which again is one of the smallest seeds in all of the entire world here. In fact, in this picture, you can kind of see the person's fingerprint better than the seed here. He says, if you have faith the size of that, then you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I want you to think about those invasive roots. Now, that's not coming out easy. Now, our tree specifically, it was old and it had issues. But a typical mulberry tree, uh, it's not coming up very easy. I mean, it is going to be in the ground. And Jesus is saying essentially here, listen, you don't have to have a crazy mountain-like faith. You have to have the faith the size of a mustard seed. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, you don't understand. You're underestimating genuine faith. And I think that's the next trap that we need to avoid at all costs is underestimating genuine faith. The Bible talks a lot about faith and what can be accomplished through faith. Take a look at Matthew chapter 21. It says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, truly, truly, I, did, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Whoa, I just want to pause right there. I and mean, think about what Jesus did. I mean, he rose people from the dead. He made people who were paralyzed walk. Blind people see. And here Jesus is saying, here in verse 12, look at this, greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now I want to just clarify something here because some of you all have probably prayed for loved ones who are sick 
and they didn't get better. And that's really difficult to grapple with that reality and what we know to be true, which is God's word. Jesus is saying here, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I want to clarify something, what he's saying here. He's saying in my name, which means God knows best. If we ask anything in his name, it's essentially saying, hey, God, I, I ask that Jesus name, this would be done, which means he's going to answer that prayer the best way that he can, which is perfectly because he's the father. He's our heavenly father and he's perfect. And so what it's saying here is when we ask this in Jesus name, we're asking for the Lord's will to be done, which we know is perfect. So here's what I want you to not fall into. And here's, here's so, many, so many times we could fall into this trap of saying, well, you know, um, that's the reality. It is what it is. And, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. And um, that's good enough. I guess I'm just going to go on and just do my normal thing. But what God is saying here is he's saying, no, 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 no. I need you to have genuine faith. Ask me in my name and it will be done. We need to not underestimate genuine faith. When we do, it could really hurt our relationship with the Lord. One more trap uh, that I want us to read about that Jesus says here in uh, verses 7 and 8, and then also in 9 and 10. This is what it says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Now, this is kind of a weird situation that Jesus is bringing up for us to read today because I don't know about you, but... I don't have any servants plowing my fields, right? I mean, typically we just don't have this sort of thing, right? And so this is difficult for us to understand. But back then, they did. And look at what he's saying here in verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? What he's saying here is there's some cultural norms here. Typically, the master of the house did not have his servant eat with him after a hard day's work. Typically, after a hard day's work, the servant's job was to serve the master dinner. And that's what he's saying. This is just typical. This is just what normally happens. He goes on here and he says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now, obviously, this is a rhetorical question. The rhetorical answer would be no, that this was just what the servant was commanded. This is just, again, typically what would happen in that time. I'm not saying that that's correct. That's just what typically would happen in that time. Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What Jesus is saying here is he's tapping into the mindset of a servant and he's saying, just as people serve earthly men, so you ought to serve your heavenly father even better. What trap that I think he is uh, referring to here is a trap that oftentimes we can become prideful the longer we follow Jesus, especially, and the more we accomplish in God's kingdom, we can become prideful in our faith. And so I think that's the last trap that we have to avoid. If you caught this, when Jesus was telling this uh, example of this servant, he's talking about uh, servants and he's saying, hey, listen, the servant just does what his master orders. And he says, I'm an unworthy servant. I'm going to continue serving you. And that is the attitude that we ought to have to God. Now, God is obviously a much better master than these earthly masters, right? And the interesting part is what Jesus was saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, an earthly master would never invite this person to their table. They're the servant. 
That's exactly what God does for us. And that really shows us how good God is, that he invites us to his table. But I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, hey, that attitude of a servant, we ought to have this attitude lest we become haughty in our relationship with God. We become prideful. We become big-headed. The Bible talks a lot about staying humble. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Psalm 25 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Proverbs chapter 11 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 16 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be lowly, a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. What Jesus is trying to get across here is that we have to avoid the trap of becoming prideful, of saying, oh, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished here. I've done all this for God. I've done all of these amazing things. Look at me. Because what happens then? We become self-centric, right? We become self-centered instead of focused on worshiping God and building up His kingdom as a good servant should be. We become focused on earthly things, becoming better than everyone else, instead of focusing on what we ought to focus on, which is pleasing the Lord. Colossians 3.2 puts it like this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Not on things that are uh, on earth like our earthly reputation, but on things that are on above that are serving the Lord, that are building up His kingdom. Listen, guys, these are traps that we have to avoid. Putting others in temptation, holding on to grudges, underestimating genuine faith, and becoming prideful in our faith. I know it's a lot, but this is what Jesus teaches to His disciples. And it's important too. It's important too that we really hold on to these things. So as we close today, let me just ask you a question. Which one of these traps, if, if any of them, do you feel like, man, ah, I really struggle with that. That's a trap that I've fallen into before. Maybe it's a trap that you're falling into during this season of your life. What can you do about that? How can you go before God and repent of that and say, I need your help. I need your help with this. Help me with becoming prideful. Help me with underestimating faith or holding on to this grudge and not forgiving someone or putting others in temptation and being haughty in that way. Help me, Jesus. Help me with these things. Let's be the type of Christians. Let's be the type of parents and the type of employees and the type of friends and neighbors who avoid these traps at all costs. And not only that as well, but to help others to avoid these same traps. This is what Jesus teaches, to avoid these. If we don't, like I said earlier, it could really wreck our faith. Let's avoid these and help others to do the same. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Help us to really take hold of what you said. To not just leave this place again the way that we entered into it, but Father, to be transformed by you. That's what we want. We want to grow in our faith. We don't want to be people who show up to church and leave unaffected and just keep on doing our normal thing. But Father, we truly want to glorify you to be transformed and help us to do that with others as well. Would you truly help us to help others to avoid these same traps, to point others towards you 
that our relationship with others would deepen their relationship with you, Father. Help us to do that. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.